You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Dead and no one told me. I walked past his office and his assistant was bawling. What is it, Felicia? Oh, haven't you heard? Mr. Tyndall's dead. What I heard was, Mr. Tyndall hurt his head. I thought, for God's sake, pull yourself together. Where is he, Felicia? Now, that was a reckless thing to ask. Matthew Tyndall and I had been lovers for 13 years, but he was my secret and I was his. In real life, I always avoided his assistant. Now her lipstick was smeared and her mouth folded like an ugly sock. Where is he? she sobbed. What an awful, awful question. I didn't understand. I asked again. Catherine, she said, he is dead, and thus set herself off on a second fit of bawling. I marched into Matthew's office, as if to prove her wrong. This was not the sort of thing one did. My secret darling was a big deal, the head curator of metals. There was the photo of his two sons on the desk. His silly, soft, tweed hat was lying on the shelf. I snatched it. I don't know why. And of course she saw me steal it, but I no longer cared. I fled down the Philip stairs onto the main floor on that April afternoon in the Georgian halls of the Swinburne Museum. Amongst the thousand daily visitors, the 80 employees, there was not one single soul who had any idea of what had just happened. Everything looked the same as usual. It was impossible. Matthew was not there, waiting to surprise me. He was very distinctive, my lovely. It was a vertical frown mark just to the left of his big high nose. His hair was thick, his mouth was large, soft and always tender. Of course, he was married. Of course, of course. He was 40 when I first noticed him, and it was seven years before we became lovers. I was by then just under 30, and still something of a freak, that is, the first female horologist the museum had ever seen. Peter Carey is the two-time winner of the Booker Prize for Oscar and Lucinda and True History of the Kelly Gang. He co-wrote the screenplay adaptation for his first novel, Bliss. His new novel is The Chemistry of Tears. Thank you for joining me, Peter. Thank you, Rick. Nice to be here. Peter, you're a master of changing our perspective, adding in an element of the fantastic to give us a whole new view of the world we live in right now. I really like that aspect of your work. <laughs> well, I'd like to hear you say it. <laughs> I suppose that uh, I began this particular book with, if you'd heard me say it at dinner or in the car or something, and I said I was done, you'd think it was a sort of a B-grade science fiction sort of idea. And where I began, which is about 20 moves from where the book ends up, but where I began was, was thinking, you know, if if some hostile space aliens wish to destroy the planet, Perhaps one thing they could consider doing is just coming to Earth and giving us the plans for the internal combustion engine and going away for 200 years. And um, I have a very personal and particular and emotional connection with the internal combustion engine. My, my, my father and my grandfather sold cars. My father, uh, in, a, in, a, in a dairy farming district of Australia, you know, 
learned to, to, to order a particular T-model Ford that had a limited slip differential at the back so that he knew he could get the farmer up to the top of the muddy hill. And once he could do that, he could sell the car. So my whole family is full of the love of the car, the marvel of their invention. And yet, you know, I'm now living, and I love my family. And so, but now I'm living in an age where I, I look, I'm looking at global warming. I'm looking at the planet now and and I'm talking to my sons who are very, very concerned about what sort of world they can live in and if indeed there's any hope at all. So I was interested in the internal combustion engine. I was interested in, I started to think really we are living in the, in, in, in the, the, the consequences of the Industrial Revolution now. And if somebody said to me, well, why are you so interested in the 19th century? I'd say because we actually are living in the 19th century. We're living in the, with the consequences of the 19th century. So that's where I sort of, I was looking for... Uh, a story which was about the wild, wild, very beautiful, thrilling inventions because we humans are very inventive uh, creatures and uh, all of the machines of the 19th century and the 18th and at a time when invention was sort of almost innocent and uh, to look at where that beauty has led us to. One of the things that, that we experience in this book is scientific invention as a, as a work of art. Yes, and I think that's a really interesting perception as we explore the world of these automata. I mean, these creations were more than just meant to do something; they were meant to bring a kind of a, a beauty—the beauty of the truth of science—into yes. the world and a sense of sense of wonder. Also, to complicate that, you know, one of the one of, one of the first automata that, that I became aware of was a, a extraordinary duck uh, invented by. A man who was actually a serious inventor or scientist, a man called Vaucasson, who invented sort of, I think, the Jacquard knitting machine and all sorts of things like that. Anyway, he invented this duck, which was uh, moved and, and raised its wings, and it also appeared to defecate, and uh, which was a great wonder because what it seemed to be doing was, you know, that whole whole argument, which I think probably goes back to Descartes at least, is about the question of. You know the the, the human uh, uh, the, to we, the question of the soul and the question to which the the body is a mechanical thing, and here he seemed to have well, to sort of really almost have sort of created life because, you know, I mean, if you know if you can eat and defecate, maybe you're well on the way. Um, it was a very beautiful thing, and Mark Twain, I think, did Mark Twain say that? Uh, no, Goethe saw the saw the duck, uh, and. Um, but the only trouble with this particular thing of great beauty was the two things. One is, in fact, it was a cheat. He would not let anybody see inside the duck, but in fact, the the, the ingestion <laughs> was one part of the thing, and 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 the defecation was not connected to that. It was a little trick. So there's some there's a little bit of fraudulence. There's a lot of beauty and amazement, and it is raising the questions of life and death and who are we. Um, so and the other the other thing that that is it actually the life the life of that particular duck because I was I was very interested and I wanted to find out about it. It seems to have lived not much longer than a human being before when it was I think it was maybe it was Goethe who saw, saw it when it was was a bedraggled, sad, sorry thing. <laughs> almost finished. I think what you're getting to is is the heart of the book and one of the things that interested me as we read about the the duck in this book and and uh the other uh automaton of those days was the turk 
uh, the chess plane robot. Yes. And they both operated on, under completely false premise pretenses. But as external observers, we have to ask, does it matter? Because we perceive the soul. We perceive the intelligence. Yes. We perceive the the animism and the life within these creatures. And we have to look... Well, what really? What is the difference? Yeah. Even if it is a trick, I yes. mean, the duck—a real duck—is a trick too. Yes, I agree. <laughs> and 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 the uh, and it, yes, it, it does raise the awful questions of who are we and uh, and if if we are indeed uh, miraculous machines, what does what does that mean about the things we believe in, the things we hope, and the things we feel? Uh, I I think one of the one of the um, Occasionally, people writing about this particular book have been tempted to compare the novel itself to an automaton, which I've not felt is not an idea that I feel very comfortable with because it leads to a particular conclusion. Because the thing about the automaton is the thing that creeps us out about it is that it's you see this moving mechanical thing, and a whole part of it responds to it. This is life, and we respond that way, and yet it's not life, and that's what's that awful feeling that it's life but it's not life is very disturbing. I mean, it's a sort of a creepy sort of a feeling. So if you want to – this is the opposite of what I want the reader to feel in a book. I want the reader to feel that uh, – not that there's this yeah, false false um, imitation of life, but rather to feel the you know, the blood, the heart, you know, the – the, the feelings, that the, to be no gap between our sense of what is human and what is on the page. I think that that sense of what you're calling about, is, it's called the, the, the valley of unease. Yeah, uh, the that, uncanny, right? The, it's, well, that's, that was the Freud's uh, yeah. version of it, but there's a very specific uh, notion of when we look at uh, the particularly the most lifelike robots, and we know they're robots, or even if we don't know, when you like watch, that's mm. why I find it really hard to watch uh, digitally animated cartoon characters mm. that are, you know, try to be really realistic. Mm. It just creeps me out. The Valley, the valley of Unease is such a beautiful expression, isn't it? Well, that's, yeah. that's where uh, these creatures arise from, mm. because we don't know whether they're alive, and they make us maybe question our own yes. life as yes. well. This book has a wonderfully, uh, it's really a, it's a quick read. It's very intense. You just it, It's a one or two day read. You just will whip through it. And I love the setup of this book. Uh, tell us, which of these characters did you encounter first when you sat down to write? There well, are two characters in well, there. Well, in theory, I knew there had to be two. Mm-hmm. You know, there had to be the person in the 19th century who was having the automaton made. And there had to be the person... In, in our century, who was reassembling it, and there were these two people. Uh, I, I probably, and I'm a very unreliable witness of the process by now because I, I don't really. But my feeling is that I um, I engaged with Catherine, who's the modern museum person, first, and I engaged with her firstly because I wanted to start there. Secondly, because it seemed a really, really difficult thing to do. And also, as I started to think about her, I had an idea about her and her life situation, which ends up being actually pivotal for the book. I mean, it's, you know, the questions of life and death really apply to her because she has just lost her lover, her secret lover, 
who she's work, worked with for all these years, a married man, no one knows that they're, they're lovers. And so when he dies, she can't express her grief at all. She can't go to the funeral. She can't do anything, and she's driven crazy by it. Now, I believe, talking about myself at some distance, that this idea came into my head because I heard of somebody that this had happened to. And I heard of somebody who had uh, had the awful task of sort of trying to you know, get rid of her lover's emails and the emails between them and all of that sort of thing and how they couldn't tell anybody, how she couldn't go to the funeral. And I thought it was a really moving story. So I started to make her the character working in a museum, which I was anxious about too because I had to find out how museums work. And I don't really think I knew consciously that in choosing that situation, I was giving you know the perfect character to engage with the construction of an automaton, when that is issues, a grieving person dealing with uh, this machine that simulated life and that raises questions of death and the soul and who we are. I, I also loved your, your counter-narrative, uh, Henry Brandling. This is written... It, the, the prose in this book is really amazing because we have this very intense, right-in-her-mind feeling, involvement with, with Catherine, and, and the, we're, her emotions are right. We are present with them. They are ours. And, and Henry Brandling is, is a 19th-century gentleman. He's in a foreign country, and he has a rather different mode of expression, but he also has reasons to have his own emotions coming to the top, and he's a, a highly repressed man. Mm. It must have been a lot of fun to write him, and very difficult. I feel terribly fond of Henry. I mean, because, I mean, one of the things about him is that he's, he's, uh, he's probably not the brightest person you might ever meet, but he felt sort of decent to me. And... Um, and his situation, he really, he's told himself a story, really, as to why he's the one that's going to have the automaton made in Germany, have it made for his sick son who's got consumption. And and the, 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 the first part of the story is that his little boy's sick and this will get him out of the dumps and maybe uh, create some sort of magnetic excitement in the boy that will heal him. But as you sort of think about it a little bit more, what's happened to poor Henry is his family situation is sort of awful and that, that uh, they've already lost one child to consumption. His wife can't really bring herself to love her son because she so fears losing him and, 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 the, the, and, lose, and all the pain and grief. And effectively, she can't stand Henry's optimism about the child. Henry has really been thrown out of his home. And... Um, so Henry's full of all sorts, which he can't really quite deal with and quite really express properly, but he's he's been thrown out of his home. He's been sent to Germany because he's suggested this thing about the automaton. He fears for his little boy. He's determined that the, the, that, that the automaton will affect a cure, but he's carrying all sorts of pain that he can't really quite bring to the surface. And as he said, he's the one, he's always the glass half full is Henry's sort of position. He's a sort of an optimist. So, Well, you know, there's a great line in there. They say, he says of himself, I'm the kind of guy who says the glass is half full even when it's shattered on the ground at my feet. <laughs> yes, he does. He does. <laughs> now, one of the things that's so interesting, though, is as you described, that I think what happens is in the same way that we see when you see uh, like a, a picture of a machine and they'll kind of 
pulling apart out, like exploded out, like in details. That happens through the narrative to Henry's emotions. You you kind of, in a way, uh, you pull them out, and we get to see more and more what's going on within him, what's making him tick. And it's not clockwork, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know quite what to say to that, except that I think in the in the parallels of the story mm-hmm. of, of Catherine's story and Henry's story, that they are both the in the, the in the center of their story is, is is this mechanical thing, and that they're both dealing with you know different sorts of grief or suppressed grief or anticipated grief, and we come to understand the nature of Henry's predicament more and more as the book goes on. Yeah. Now, uh, talk about. Um, creating the this automaton in the both in the past and in the present, um, because uh, you have the the situation where you set a, up this part of Germany. You describe it as a forest so thick that you have to climb down the trees to get to the farms, <laughs> and that's such a great line. It really creates this kind of a very uh, Brothers Grimm feeling, mm. and, and uh, they get mentioned. They get name checked. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do. That particular line about the notion of these these little villages where you have to climb down, uh, I confess uh, to lifting from a nineteenth century uh, uh, account of the Black Forest and a, a visit an English guide to people, you know, rambling. I think it was called or walking or tramping in the Black Forest. And it was such a strange, uh, beautiful little thing to find. I, I lifted the idea from this. Thing in the nineteenth century, the, I, I get into the into the Black Forest for all sorts of weird, uh, weird sort of for different reasons. One of them was, and these things do seem to happen by accident. But how can they be accident? I'm just talking about how the how the mind works when you don't know it's working. But firstly, you know, um, I was interested in the internal combustion engine. I was interested in Carl Benz. Uh, Carl Benz, Carl Benz was born in the city of Karlsruhe in Germany, which is uh, which I then find is actually the ancient city anyways made in the shape of a wheel, which I thought was just spectacular. And I was so obsessed with that that even not even my publisher couldn't persuade me not to reproduce the pic- that picture in the book. It's a really great picture, and it's I think it. Uh, there are a lot of pictures in this book for, for a, a work of fiction. I think they really add a lot to it. They give a, a an eerie feel to it. Yes. Well, I thought... I mean, like, there's no way one couldn't see, you know, feel that weird, weird city. Anyway, so the, as if, as if, the, as if in the architecture of, uh, of the what 16th century or 17th century, the uh, automobile was foreseen somehow in the, um, which I don't make a big fuss about, which is just as well. Uh, but then, of course, the Black Forest is not so far from there. And so that's interesting, and that's interesting because, of course, you know the cuckoo clock is, and the the the, the farmers in the Black Forest, you know, make, make cuckoo clocks and clockmakers in in the winter time, so that sort of suits me as well, and um, and then I hadn't really thought about fairy tales, and I hadn't really thought about the Brothers Grimm, until I started to get into the story a bit and I decided that one of these characters was a fairy tale collector and then I started to think about fairy tales and I, I thought and I thought about how the, the way in which uh, 
I still wasn't sort of thinking about what was happening in my story as being like a fairy tale, but I was thinking more of, of Henry Brandling's tender-hearted <laughs> response to the cruelty of fairy tales. And uh, and so I was more interested in that at the beginning as, as a character thing, you know, that here's a man who's a grown man who's really, really terrified and moved by fairy tales. You know, the was it the witch or the or the evil stepmother forced to dance in a red hot iron shoes, which when we start to look at these things are pretty odd. So all of these things start to assemble in a way that sort of suit my story and one thing that I think is is so interesting. At one point, uh, one of your characters says, uh, "We English are are the fantasists," and, and I, I like that uh, kind of contrast. And what the way this kind of reflects through the story of the way between Catherine deleting her emails and how that tells a story, mm. and how these the pages of the manuscript she finds tells a story. The the sense of story that you have in this book is really interesting and complicated and kind of gnarly. <laughs> yes. Um, well, I had to see to think about how all that works in the business of Catherine. Just to pick up on the aspect of Catherine reading Henry. Uh, when I began the book, um, I I knew I had. And now it's obvious what I did, and so it's solved and it works, and it must have been in my head at the beginning, but it wasn't. What, the th- what I had in the beginning is I had two characters who I knew could never meet. And this would seem to be like a kamikaze act for an author, you know, to try and construct a novel. The two characters are going to meet. They're not going to have a sort of a woo-woo love affair or, or anything like that. But And, of course, as I continued... It started to work because they're both involved with the construction of the same thing across time, and their their emotions are quite different but related in terms of you know grief and loss and longing and death and these sort of things. So they start to join in that way. But then there had to be the moment when, because Catherine is reading Henry's notebooks, there had to be a discovered. You know, the relationship that we all have when we read. There is a relationship between the, the writer and the reader. And if we're readers, we really know that relationship very well. And that's incredibly intimate. And it's quite interesting. And it's one thing that the reader's relationship with a novel, but the reader's relationship with um, an old document, which is not it's quite set up like a novel, is much more interesting. It's interesting for, for all the things that are unknown in it. You know, if, if, you've, if sometimes I'm researching something and I'm reading an old document and, and there's a, a person's named or something strange is said and it's never picked up on again. And you, you, it's sort of, you have this sense of looking, looking through you know, a fog just, and wondering what that thing is. Or you're imagining the character sitting in a certain place or being in a certain place, and a sentence later they're in a completely different place, and your mind goes through that jump. I wanted her to be really involved with the process of reading, not only within its sort of the, the mysteries of it, uh, but also the sort of really deep sort of emotional connection with the character that she's reading. So I discovered that, and I was very, very, very pleased to discover it. And that's where the, because the way the narrative is set up will have portions that are 
labeled Catherine and Henry, and then we have Catherine and Henry, where she's completely wrapped up in that mm-hmm. reading experience and caught in that world that she's making as much as he is. It's yes. a 50 50 deal. Yeah. The writer does half of it, the work, but you, what's interesting in here is that you acknowledge the reader's doing the other half. Yes. And I. I had no idea that was going to, when I begin the book, you know, the, the wonderful thing about writing novels is getting to places that you couldn't have imagined. And that was completely necessary to make the book work. And that sounds sort of structural and cold, but what it, what the reward of it is an intense emotional experience. And, uh, and I'd never quite written about that before, and I was really pleased to find it. Well, as readers, what's really interesting as we approach this, we get that on like three levels because (laughs) we're involved with Catherine, we're involved with Henry, and then we're involved with her reading about Henry. So the book has a very uh, wonderful hall of mirrors, and what's mirrored in in the in a kind of funhouse mirror way are the emotions, and that's where I think the 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 real life of this book is where. The, as readers, we're feeling Catherine's emotions, we're feeling Henry's emotions, and we're feeling her, how she feels about him. Right. And that's, that is a really interesting trick to pull off. Well, I'm, I'm all for tricks, of course. <laughs> I'm a tricky creature. I'm a, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a novelist. Well, I, I think, you know, given that I went into this book sort of really thinking about, well, as I most often do, not having yet invented the characters, going in driven by an idea, almost always driven by an idea, one can't predict what an emotional field one is going into, whether it's a gold mine or, or something else, because you've just got And as it turns out, I, my feeling about it is, is that the great blessing that I feel is that I found the you know, the most emotional book I've ever written, and the the feelings in the book being more intense than anything that I've ever written. But I couldn't have known that at the beginning because at the very beginning I didn't know who Catherine was, and I didn't know who Henry was, and I didn't didn't know what was going to happen. Well, it's interesting too, in in the characterization by absence category, uh, we I mean a major character in this book, uh, Matthew, he's dead. Yes. <laughs> Much of the book, yes. and, and he casts a, a big shadow over the entire proceedings. He's an entirely decent man. We really like Matthew yeah. a lot, we even see. though he was cheating on his wife for all those years. Yes, well, we 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 are given to understand that she was cheating on him too. I think, but 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 uh, yes, absolutely, and that's and that's and one of the other things that as the writer you need to decide. Um, is whether you need to know more about Matthew or less about Matthew, you know? I mean, I wanted to... What you're telling telling me is is entirely satisfactory uh, in the sense that I hoped I had the right amount and that the emotional weight that Matthew has in the book was the the right amount. And I didn't want to sort of invent more and more and more and more memories of Catherine and Matthew and so on and so on. So... If you feel those things that you feel, that's that's means I've for me that as far as you're concerned, I, I hit the balance. All right. Well, uh, too, this is also a book about how we uh, craft the stories of our lives, mm-hmm. in and um, in that uh, we don't remember things in chronological order. We remember them in an emotional order. Though, yes. It, that and that. Um, 
we unfortunately we can't delete our memories in the same way we can delete emails, can we? <laughs> no, no, it's a funny thing. I mean, in uh, she's sitting there at the computer de- deleting emails because she's frightened that uh, the company, the, the the museum people will read them, and it involves also deleting photographs and all of these sort of things. And uh, I don't know whether you ever feel this sort of thing when I go tidying up my computer. I have a certain feeling of loss when I <laughs> delete certain things, you know. I mean, you can't keep everything forever, you know. But sometimes the, the smallest communication from someone is, is quite precious. And to actually push the delete button or to delete it, I I often feel it as quite a serious decision. <laughs> it drives me crazy, of course. Now, uh one of the things that you do really well in this book is create the atmosphere of working in the museum and you know the the occupation of horologists which is something most of us have never heard of me neither <laughs> <laughs> talk about uh, uh researching that and sitting down to you know how much of that did you have to internalize to cop you know to sit down and craft the prose that's Catherine's mm. perceptions well, you know, the minute sometimes it's a sign for me that I'm I'm into an interesting area because it's so uh, I I don't know anything about it yet and and uh, I like you a horologist what's that well I wanted someone that fixed clocks and and, and automata and that's someone in a museum is called a horologist um, and I knew this was going to have to I decided it was going to have to be in a museum and the museum was going to be restoring it. And I knew a tiny bit, a tiny, tiny bit about museums and, and because I've written about painting, a, l- a little bit about restoration of artworks, and but that's all. So I wrote, a, I emailed to the Victoria and Albert Museum in London and said, is there somebody who could talk to me? And finally, an email came back and said, a woman called Marianne Kite could talk to me, and she was a... A uh, conservator, uh, head conservator of test textiles and whatever, and I talked to her, and she had indeed restored an automaton as far as the textiles were concerned. And there's all sorts of little things that are in the book. She, uh, she told me on the phone in our very first conversation how restoring automatons is a sort of a creepy thing, and they sort of creep crept her out, and she has a has a smoking Chinese person. And a, and a laughing monkey or something she worked on and how in the end to finish one of them she had to put a paper bag over its head because it so distressed her and also she talked about how the the, the fabrics if they have fabrics involved with them and as they satin and velvet with age become very unpleasant you know and with, together with this uh, lifelike thing that's really dead so she she really entered into it and I talked to her a lot and uh Many, had many conversations and exchanges of emails. But quite early, and I said, the trouble was I was interested in the, in Vorkason's duck. And she said, well, I don't know. I don't think you know it even exists anymore. But did you know that uh, the Bose Museum has this silver swan? You see? And, uh, and she described a silver swan, which was very beautiful and moved in a very lifelike way. And... and I said, well, how can I see a photograph of it or something? She said, you can do better than that. You can go on YouTube. <laughs> so I went on YouTube, and there was a silver swan. And In fact, there were sort of about 20 different 
YouTube postings of this gorgeous silver swan. And then I um, I don't want to go on too long about all of this, but, but so you could tell me to stop. But I, I no, uh, it's fascinating. <laughs> I, I then I then telephoned the museum in Durham in the United Kingdom, and I got hold of the, the one of the two people who ran the museum in this way, and through them. I learned two things. One is that the swan had just recently been restored and that all the notes and everything for the restoration of the swan and all day by day by day by day were online. And that um, and that was particularly interesting. And, uh, and there was film of that. And also, and the guy who had done it, the horologist who had been in charge of this, a man called Matthew Reed, uh, might talk to me. And... Uh, he was not at the museum. He was somewhere else. And in the end, I, he was—he thought I was—he thought I was nuts. Recently in London, a student of his—he teaches at West Dean, uh, which is a, a school that deals with these sort of things in the south of England. One of his students was at a reading event uh, at the South Bank in London, and uh, she said, "Yeah, that she asked a question, and then I asked her. I suspected that she was from there, and she was. And I and I said, "Well, what did Matthew Reed think of all this?" And she said, well, she thinks it's a lot more interesting. The book's a lot more interesting than real life. And, and uh, But I, I said, so what did you think of me? And she said, she thought you were nuts. <laughs> <laughs> but he was terrifically helpful. So I, the thing that always as a novelist, the thing that I have to do is I have the big thing for me is the emotional life of my characters. You know, how do they feel? How are they going to, how are they going to act? But... They have to interact with the restrictions and demands the real world places on them, whether it be gravity, for instance, or whether it becomes the, the, the issues of restoring a swan or building a swan. So w what happened, of course, is that once I found, I, sw I made my duck into a swan uh, for, in the most expedient way, but that then produced a very interesting character for me because Henry goes to the clockmaker and says, I want a duck. The clockmaker, being a sort of a, a sort of an arrogant sort of art artist type, decides that he doesn't need a Henry doesn't need a duck, he needs a swan. And all the time he won't tell him what he's making, but what he he's gonna make what he wants to make. And so I in a funny way by having going from making the duck into a swan myself, uh I create a character who I really love, who's a, who's a megalomaniacal uh, clockmaker artist. And that is Herr Sumper, and he is such a joy to read. <laughs> These scenes that are, are set in, in this black forest with Herr Sumper and, and uh, the, the, the child who is really creepy, Carl, he almost seems like a, a robot himself. Mm. And, and so I'd like you to talk about uh, Herr Sumper. Once you found the emotional core of this man. It seemed like he just kind of ran away with his part of the book. Well, he's the person that is going to make a swan when he's asked for a duck. That's, that's, <laughs> that's the first thing. So, so his character starts to be defined by his action even before I know him. And then I have to think he is in the Black Forest. Uh, they're good at, at cuckoo clocks and all that sort of thing. But what, but what he's going to make is going to be something a little bit more advanced than the average cuckoo clock. So I have to think how he knows these things. And so I have to invent for him a life where he goes to London and where he meets people who, uh, scientists, some of them who he ends up working for as a, as a, as a sort of a clockmaker figure. And uh, 
so that that's also an important part of his character that he's seen another world that the the, the farmers and clockmakers of the Black Forest have never seen. Um, you know, it strikes me in a way that what you're kind of writing in this book and those, especially in those parts, and in fact, this whole book, I would describe it. You said at the very outset of our conversation, you said it sounds like a cheesy science fiction idea. <laughs> I mean, you know, those whom the gods would destroy, they first give TV. Um, uh, so, uh, but I think what you're writing here is kind of reverse science fiction. Um, you're not making anything up, but you take our perceptions back in a way so that uh, Herr Sumper, for example, is something of a science fiction figure. He's like a, a kind of a mad genius yes. of his time, uh, almost a figure out of Jules Verne. Yes. And uh, as is Catherine to a degree. She's kind of like, again, a science fiction in reverse. She's trying to re-engineer yes. something that would seem fantastic to us to try to build today. Yes. today. Well, I think also one of the, the science fiction part of it, um, in Sumpa, comes from his experience of working for, in a relatively lowly way, for 19th century English scientists. And if you start to read, as I did, uh, about 19th century English scientists, you'll find sort of extraordinary things that, that, that are like science fiction. You know, that, so, you know, Humphrey Davies, you know, who, who is really, really a big, he, he's most famous for having invented the safety lamp, which allowed uh, coal miners to go down and not be blown up when they were working underground. Uh, a hugely important, very, very rational man. And then you start to read, uh, he wrote a book called Consolations of Travel, I think, or Consolations of the Traveler, uh, which influenced me amazingly because lots of the crazy stuff that Sumpa goes on with is actually, yeah, it, 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 was, it, was, it was Humphrey Davies who's writing in this book about, you know, you know, he says to the superior being, take me out into the outer realms of knowledge. And, and, and he sees creatures, creatures like uh, seahorses and, and, uh, and talks about people of infinitely greater knowledge than our own and beyond the other planets and so on. Um, so this, which reads like crazy stuff, is actually the sort of, we can glimpse the thought processes of 19th century scientists. So what Sumpa's playing back in this thing which seems sort of totally insane, um, and it may well be insane, but it's a sort of insanity that people of great sanity also thought. Well, too, I mean, we get this uh, right from the beginning uh, with Brandling and all the, the, the cures he's trying to give yes. to his son. I yes. mean, uh, that's one of the things I think that's very interesting about uh, this book is, you know, uh, as you say at one point, uh, the nature of science is that uh, it's always unacceptable for people to – the truth is unacceptable for those uh, who, who you know, are presented with science. And we're experiencing right, that right now. <laughs> we're certainly <laughs> in, in a sort of weird, terrifying retro sort of way. We certainly are experiencing that. But I think – you know, when we look back at, in the, into the past and we see all the people who could not, they were so stupid. You know, they, they, they thought the sun went round the, the earth and uh, how mad could they have been. But presumably we're still doing the same sort of thing today, you know, that we really don't. 
I, I'm a very, you know, in the in the book, there are sort of two sort of arguments, I suppose you would say, you know, and there's someone like Catherine who really does believe we are amazingly miraculous, moving, glorious machines, and which doesn't lessen her wonder in life or the authenticity of her feelings or any of those sort of things. So she's, you know, an atheist and a rationalist and so on, I would say. But then there's this other other sort of thread in the thread in the book which says uh, anything is possible. You know, we how would you know? How would we know more than? Are we like a blowfly sort of buzzing against the glass in a cathedral that we have no idea of the cathedral? We know have no have no idea of what is beyond the cathedral. Why would we be different to our kind ever? In that we've really not had a very good idea of where we are. So that is also sort of a... And I think that's a... I'm an atheist, but I think that also that is true. I mean, it must be true. How could we possibly know? So the book does represent uh, me arguing with myself, I suppose, and but also those two different ways of looking at things. Well, I love it when I think it... Or, no, it's Henry who says, would I be able to see what I judged to be impossible? Yes. And I think that's a really good question. Yes, and that's yes. that's at the at, yeah. at the heart of this novel. Yeah. There, there, there is a there is a line in Latin, and it's in Latin, so the character can't Catherine can't read it immediately, <laughs> and uh, and Henry can't read it, and other people can't read it, and the reader can't read it. But it it it, it, it translated, and I mean, I I wrote it in English and had someone translate it into Latin, and there it is, you know, on the. But yeah, it says you cannot see what you, you cannot see what you can see. Uh, as uh, yes, we don't know what as we, don't know what, don't, we yeah. don't know what we're looking at. Yeah. There is a story, and I, I don't know whether this is one of those things that there is a story that is told that the indigenous people of Australia, who had lived successfully in their environment f- for fifty thousand years, when first seeing the English ships off the coast, did not see them because such things did not exist. <laughs> well, that would make a, a, a fair amount of sense. It, mean, it would. One of the things I think that is, is so interesting is the texture of the portions that are set in the Black Forest. It has a really wonderful feel of the, of the fantastic. You kind of like, um, even though it's gritty and immerses us in a kind of historical reality, there's just a feel that anything could happen. Mm. And I'm wondering, as you were crafting these parts as a writer, going back between that and the kind of the really emotional, intense reality of Catherine's stuff, which just seems like, you know, the kind of torture that we see people have to go through every day when some, you know, a loved one dies. Mm. Going back and forth between that kind of the textured fantastic and the emotionally intense um, arcs. Talk about uh, creating that kind of... uh, Back and forth. Well, I don't think I thought about it in that way because, of course, it wasn't there at the beginning and I'm making it. Uh, I think what I really, all I wanted was to have two different worlds. And I wasn't, I couldn't have seen it as clearly as you see it now while I was making it. I was just sort of making what I felt it had to be, I suppose. That's a remarkably stupid answer, but it it sort of is true Mm. in terms of, what I could know, what I could invent, invent uh, what the story dictated. Um, that's, and so on. But I, I certainly wanted, unless you say, to be texturally different to, 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 to Catherine's part. 
Catherine begins to feel that she's having a dialogue with Herr Sumper. And I think that's a really interesting uh, point that when we come to that point in the book, that's a, a an interesting means of plotting. I mean, you know, this book is a book that has a plot. Yes. And, and, but the plot is very unusual. <laughs> and so to go back, to, I, I suppose, to something I said before about her feeling she's having a conversation, we can say, well, that's sort of important because it's a, it's a sort of a plot thing. But also I was really thinking about her her feelings about Henry and her emotional... You know, when have you ever read a book which you really thought... Well, actually, I, I, a movie I felt this once as a young man seeing Fellini's Eight and a Half. And I sat in the cinema and I really believed in all my you know, 22-year-old grandiosity that I was the only person in the cinema that actually understood the film and that it was sort of for me. And, and, uh, and of course, that's deranged. But sometimes when reading it, there are, there are books we read sometimes when we feel they really, really speak to us and that we understand them and the writer would understand us and, and, and so on. So I think in one level that's, that's sort of Catherine's relationship with the text that she's reading. But of course a lot of uh, other emotional things are at play and in her isolation uh, and her loneliness and her rage probably her idea of Henry is, is the, the thing that she can connect to, the most human thing that she can connect to. This is a book about grief and and rage, mm. and I think uh, it's an interesting perception of it because uh, Catherine at once acts out immediately, <laughs> and, and not to her own advantage. No, not to her own advantage. No. <laughs> but also, simultaneously, she completely battens down the hatches and keeps a lid on it, and, and I think that's an interesting. Uh, Duality for to pull pull off for her as a character, and also for us as readers to keep us engaged at, with this character who is engaged uh, her own worst enemy. I don't think I've really got a comment about that because you know, in the, the, the you, you would think that the writer is really um, has a lot of knowledge about how the reader is going to react and what the reader needs and what the reader's sympathies are and so on. I don't think we always do know, and I think we're sometimes <laughs> rather surprised. Both by, you know, we're surprised if uh, at the end of when I wrote Oscar and Lucinda, which ends up with the death of one character and and, and a, a relationship that's really not properly consummated. Um, a, a very one of my most popular books. I was really unprepared for the intensity of emotion that readers felt about that ending, and readers who really love the book and and say such flattering things like it's the best book they ever read and da da da. Many of them have said that when they finished the book they threw it across the room. And the number of people have said they threw, not put down or that they threw the book across the room. If I had a dollar yeah, for every foot the, the, the book travelled in the air, I, I would be a rich man today I think. So I, I was totally unprepared for that. I didn't know that was going to happen. I mean I, I felt a lot of things about the character and the ending but I, I, I didn't really anticipate that well as a writer you're you're aren't you ripping these emotions out of yourself um hmm. i mean if that if that sort of suggests uh a, a transference of my own experience into my characters lives weirdly not really 
Uh, if it means a sort of a transmutation of other things, yes. But look, here, here's uh, a number of people uh, who talking about Catherine and talking about grief and s saying that they thought it was you know, a powerful portrait of grief said to me, so you must have experienced grief like this. And I said, no, actually, I have been fortunate so far in my life not to have. My parents, when they died, were very, very old. It was not that same sort of, you know, raw, ripping thing that happens when, you know, people are a lot younger. I miss them to this day, but it's not like what Catherine's feeling. And they said, well, how could you write that? And I, I, and I thought, well, I know what it is to love someone a lot. So if you know what it is to love someone a lot, it's not, for a novelist, it's not a really big leap to imagine the grief of losing them. And so when you say the emotions are coming out of myself, well, it's an imagined emotion in, in the face of an imagined circumstance for, for somebody who's actually different to me. <laughs> How much of this did you know was going to happen? How much is this... Is the result of how much of this book is a machine and how much of this book is a living? <laughs> I mean, is this like guts yeah. and intestines strung inside of a, 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 a mesh framework where you knew yeah. where the end of the framework was? Or is it like a, a blob? It's a bit blobby. Um, there, I mean, I wouldn't have begun it if I hadn't have had this notion of, about the internal combustion engine and you know, the, the B-grade science fiction idea about the internal combustion engine being sent from aliens to destroy the planet, you know, which in the end be, be, becomes something like the idea that the rather unstable Amanda has because she's probably the only character capable of, of, of carrying that sort of particular belief. In, in her instability you know, makes it possible for her to have those things. So I'm following the idea and then I, everything I'm just I think I'm just sort of um, I'm inventing it a little bit at a time but I know where I'm heading so let's say I you know there's that stage and then I get to the the next stage which is the you know the the, 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 the rough molding of Catherine and Henry and then I'm going through a series of questions well if that is so therefore it follows that and what would happen if and um and I can't really, really remember because the, the business of making the novel is a continual making up and it's a continual process of making up. I suppose what, what I, what, I'm, I'm a handy sort of way of talking about it, which is not exactly true for this, but it's true for many books of mine. It's sort of like, it's like I know I'm going to cross a series of mountain ranges and I've mapped the points on every peak where I've got to arrive at. And I don't really know what the terrain's like. You know, I'll go up the first hillside. I don't know what's down there. And I, don't, I just know I've got to get up to that point at the top. And so I have, a, I have a very definite direction which guides my imagination and makes certain things necessary. You know, uh, that probably sounds a bit no, I mean, fuzzy. But, um, one of the things I think that's so amazing is the way that you... Um, put together the two narratives and weave them closer and tighter and give us this, you know, as the, as the, they bring the, recreate more and more of the swan. And I, I'd like you to just talk about crafting that and crafting the emotion, weaving the emotions into the plot, because this is a, a book where the 
you know, the real plot points are emotions, mm. not necessarily what's going on. And and also, too, because it has such a small cast, it's almost like a, a play, which is, an, I think, an interesting mm. approach. Well, you know, I, there's so much of what writing is that's really, really intuitive and has got a lot to do with your own feelings. And if you've done it long enough, your sense of what you need to do, you know? And so often one is reacting quite instinctively to what feels right, you know? And when it's all over and you can look down and think, well, that worked because of this and this, but there are a number of things. Um, in terms of what you do next, when you have, when you're going from between two characters, uh, I think it's natural for the person, if you're doing your job, probably for the reader to want to stay with the first character, not want to leave. So what are you going to give the reader to persuade them that it's worth their while to jump to the new character, to the second character? And I've always thought it's sort of like you've really got to well, firstly, you've, you, 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 there, are, there are these things like you've got to you've got to make the first bit satisfying in itself formally, so you're not leaving something that's too terribly unresolved. It's not like, and then the second thing is that it's like you've got to move to a state of almost higher energy. So you've got to have a reward for leaving, Catherine. If you're going to go to Henry, you've got to immediately give the reader something that they're pleased to go to Henry. And 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 likewise with the emotions, you know, if you're leaving in a certain emotion, then you know, if you can do something to connect the emotion, then you will do it. So, and all of these things, I think after, you know, and I think I have been writing now for 46 years or something, um, there are things that I think that you just sort of know to do by feel. Uh, I like the sense of the way you use, I guess, elements of the fantastic in this novel, uh, stuff that... Um, is somewhat unreal. It's all, I mean, most of the, the Henry parts of the narrative, and even, too, when she's standing there, you know, uh, unboxing this incredible creation, mm. it has a kind of a surreal yeah. uh, feel to it, and it's slightly unreal. Mm. Um, and, and I think that those kind of uh, elements of the fantastic allow you to, uh, in the best best used, and, and I think you're a, a, the, the finest example of that, to externalize and talk about, you know, give those kind of emotions that are going all over the place. They can also show up, in a sense, as steel rods. And yes. <laughs> well, and, 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 <laughs> well they, they represent, I guess, two different parts of, of what I just like to do, I suppose. I mean, I'm really, I like to think that Somebody says, why are you a writer? Well, I, and I'll say, I want to make something very beautiful that never existed on the earth before. That's my ambition. It doesn't mean that I've done that or, or can do that, but that's my ambition. And uh, so that suggests... A, and and I'm very... Always feel that you know what's on the page is a made-up world. And it doesn't matter whether it's a memoir or whatever it is, it is a made-up world. And I like to... They take advantage of the fact that it's a made-up world. I mean, I would, I would deal. I, I for a long time, and I haven't done it. I'd like to write a book about alien space abduction and make it serious, you know. But I, there's not enough there for me to really write a book about, actually. But 
Um, so oh, but fant- there is. Please do. <laughs> you're a great world. You no, know, this is what you're talking about here. This is something that's very interesting to me called world building. Mm. Yes. Where, and, and I think every novel does it. Some of them are more conscious or less conscious of it. And I think you're very conscious that, I mean, when you build Catherine's point of view, you're building an entire world. And her world is framed by this yes, love and affair re- and yeah. grief. And the physical nature, you talk about mm-hmm. the steel rods. Well, mm-hmm. the physical nature of her world was of immense importance to me. Now, I know London really well. Uh, and uh, not just because my wife is English either, but, I've, uh, but you know, I'm, a, I'm a colonial Australian if, you know, by birth. <laughs> and uh, England and London in particular was important to me all my life. And I spent a lot of time there with this. I know London quite well. But when I wanted to write about Catherine, I actually employed a, a, a young guy who's uh, uh, trying to be a writer. You know, he, he's a writer. He, he, he's actually he just got his first book published. No. But I, I so I, I asked him if he had the time. I said, "Can you find my publisher? Can you find someone to go down near Olympia, and to the VNA, and to the the, the VNA annex, and when I've got all these questions, and the questions I asked him were just completely physical." And it was about the lanes around the VNA. It was about that particular greasy spoon where they where they meet, which mm-hmm. I knew existed. And I was looking for that really mundane physical detail at every every sense. And he was he did a very very good job. I mean, I, I gave him ten pages of questions, and he sent me back fifty pages of answers. And out of that, I've probably used ten sentences, but enough to really understand the the physical nature of the world. So I want to have space aliens, but I want you to be, you, the reader, to be standing on a really solid, really fully imagined world and for there to be steel rods and for you to know how the steel rods work. And the steel rods say, you know, will restrict me as much as enable me to make something new. Uh, and it's a great pleasure. I, I, I mean, I love to talk to people. At the moment, I'm writing a book set in Australia and about almost every night, I'm on the phone at five o'clock, which is seven in the morning in Australia, talking to people who taught in a high school in, in Melbourne in the 80s. And it's such fun. I mean, I really do love it. <laughs> that, so your next book is uh, a high school in Moab set in the 80s? Oh, no. Uh, there's a little tiny part of it that, that, that's set. In, in, well, it's, a, it's my this young girl goes to this high school at a certain important part of her life. But it, it covers uh, the book itself covers about 40 years. How how much of your how many books do you work on at once? Or uh, did, one one at a time. One when I finished a book, I, I just count myself lucky if I've got one idea for uh, another book, and uh, if I haven't, I, and I always f- feel, I often feel that I'm not going to ever have another idea again. Well, we're glad you had this idea. This is such a wonderful reading experience. I've been speaking with Peter Carey. His new book is The Chemistry of Tears. Thank you for joining me, Peter. Rick, thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.